First, though, we're going to talk a little bit about long-term care residents and the number of essential visitors there are in this province. Isabel McKenzie is the Seniors Advocate and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, you've uh, uh, written about this. I know you've done recently, you and your office did a survey, and that's where the numbers that look to be a little bit different in uh, the number of essential visitors and uh, visitors who have qualified. Um, the, the number that the province puts out is very different than the number from your survey. Where do you think we stand as far as the number of essential visitors at this point? Well, the provincial numbers, and I've asked for clarification on where that number came from, and and I expect to receive that. I haven't received it yet. But the minister, I think, has referred to about 8,000 essential visitors, which would be about 24% when you look at the, the, I think it's about uh, 33,000 long-term care residents that we have. When we did our survey, um, now that people were answering the survey in the month of September, at that point in time, we estimated that about 15% of residents had an essential visitor. Now, it's possible that there's been some increase in that with some clarifications that have come forward. But I think the bigger uh, issue is, even if it is the, the 24% uh, number, that when you look at who is in long-term care, when we look at the clinical profiles and when we look at uh, the criteria, the guidelines for essential visits, uh, you're sort of at least I'm having a difficult time reconciling how only 24% of residents have an essential visitor. Now, it's true some residents will not have family members who can be essential visitors for them. That is true. But what my office is hearing from, and I think others are as well, is more that family members are trying to be essential visitors and are being denied. There are some care homes out there that that have not a single uh, designated essential visitor for their residents. And that, I think, speaks to the need for uh, more uh, direct um, clarification and prescriptiveness to health authorities and by extension to care homes around the need to facilitate these essential visits and essential visitors. Because do we know in scenarios like that if it's a case of people are applying but not getting approved or people simply aren't applying or maybe don't know that they could apply? Uh When we first did the survey, that was when a lot of people didn't realize there were these quote-unquote essential visitors. They they went with the social visitor. But now what we're hearing, uh, what we hear mostly, is from people who have tried to become an essential visitor and have been denied the ability to become an essential visitor. And when you look at the uh, guidelines put forward by the ministry, and, and the ministry will say that they're guidelines and they are interpreted by each health authority and the health authorities will in turn say they're interpreted by the care homes. But when you look at the the wording and the language, uh, it's very difficult to understand why uh, approximately 80% of our residents are not uh, fitting the criteria for an essential uh, caregiver. Because uh, essential pa- right visitor, pardon me, essential visitor. And from what I understand too, and there seems to be some confusion as well that residents in long-term care are permitted to have both an essential visitor as well as a social visitor. They are permitted both. Uh, there was definitely confusion about that, um, and some health authorities explicitly said, "No, you can only have one." 
Um, but if you have an essential uh, visitor, you are also able to have a social visitor. The difference is when the care home is in outbreak, there are no social visits, period. When it is possible that some of the essential visits might continue when a care home is in outbreak. There's also different language coming from health authorities to family members about essential visits. It's not just about end of life. Um, it is about um, not not just compassionate care, critical illness. Somebody might be critically ill, but they're not at a, a end of life. It is about um, visits that are paramount to the resident's mental uh, well-being, um, communication assistance for peace, persons with hearing, visual, speech, or cognitive uh, impairments. And you you sort of say, well, that actually should be the majority of our people in long-term care. And yet, that's not who's getting uh, essential visit uh, designation. And just before I let you go, even as as we started this conversation, another release came out of another outbreak at a long-term care facility in the Fraser Health Authority that a staff member and a resident have tested positive for COVID at the Eagle Ridge Manor. That's going to, to make people, I think, or put people on edge in that trying to find that balance. Do you think there needs to be more clear guidelines in how to safely have essential visitors, what essential visitors are? and make sure that people are getting as as much access as possible? I I think there does uh, need to be much more directive um, clarity um, because clearly uh, the experience of people is not uniform. And I think the other thing that we need to remember is the role, the pivotal role that family members can play, not all do, but can play in actually assisting care homes to care for residents when they are under particular uh, constraints, for example, in an outbreak. If we cast our minds back to the first outbreak at Lynn Valley, if it wasn't for the family members showing up the day after the outbreak was declared, those residents would have had nobody to help them uh, go to the toilet, get out of bed, and get fed. There was quite a um, a period of time. It, it, it was remedied fairly quickly, but there was absolutely a period of, of time there where the staffing resources were significantly diminished and family members stepped in and helped. And I think we need to refocus what the role of family members can be. They're not an issue to be managed. They are a resource that we can call upon, and many will respond to that call to help not just their loved ones, but the loved ones of people who are not able to be essential visitors. And do you think we're going to have to wait for frontline workers and essential visitors to be vaccinated until we really can have that conversation of much more access? Well, I think there's two issues. There's uh, certainly if more people were designated essential visitors, they would get the vaccine. Um, And I think there's a, a difference between the number of different people going in and allowing a person for that family member to go in and form part of the care team. One has much, much less risk of uh, transmission attached to it than the other, uh, because certainly we're not finding that the virus is coming in from family members. Um, It is coming in from uh, staff. They don't mean to bring it in. This is not uh, uh, by any, in any way, a reflection on staff people. In fact, they're Many are quite anxious about they don't want to be doing that. But um, I, I do think we need to, to rethink how we have looked at 
the role that some family members could play in being part of the care team uh, versus being an outsider coming into the care home. All right. Uh, Isabel McKenzie, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. My pleasure, Jill. Well, councillors in the city of Vancouver are in agreement on something, and it has to do with the benefits that have come into place during this pandemic, and in particular, some benefits that are going to be taken away, clawed back. And joining me uh, to talk about this is councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. And uh, councillor, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Good to be here. Uh, It's not often we have everybody on council on the same page and in agreement. No, it's not often, and I think it really speaks to the critical nature of this issue and the fact that it's become such a a core issue that is um, overriding everything else in the city of Vancouver. Uh, So Council has uh, penned a letter or has made it very clear that they would like to see, uh, especially the increases, the $300 increases, the supplement to social assistance rates uh, that were brought in and that are being clawed back, to have those made permanent. What kind of a difference do you think it would make for people, especially in the city of Vancouver, if that was made permanent? Well, I think it would make a, a huge difference because right now um, your rates, for example, for someone on on uh, social assistance is $760 a month, um, which is $9,120 a year. Um, the average BC income is 35000 And if your income is less than 40% of $35,000 or $14,000, you're considered to be living in severe poverty. So at the current $9,000, that's obviously far below. And around in terms of your questions and the impact that has on people, what we hear is the toll it takes on mental health for people, knowing that they can't cover basic things such as food, let alone purchasing clothing items or a pair of shoes or being able to provide for their family. And then we see the downstream impacts on mental health and all the costs that that incurs to society. Uh, It's a a provincial jurisdiction. Are you hopeful that the letter, that there will be some impact, especially having all of the voices on council writing it and making their, uh, their opinion on this very clear? I think we're incredibly hopeful. I I can't recall something else that council has been as unanimously behind. Um, And I think the very fact that this is such an unusual step for this council to take, to write an open op-ed letter together um, and have everybody sign on to that across the very diverse party lines we have, I'm hopeful we'll send a strong signal to the provincial government as they come into their budget debate. Do you think it's different as well? In Vancouver, we do, there is the downtown east side. There is certainly uh, neighborhoods that have a lot of different issues and different than other parts of the province. Do you think that it's something uh, that Vancouver residents should be singled out or it should be looked at as the city of Vancouver, not the province as a whole? Uh, I, I think you see poverty. You see poverty across um, municipalities and throughout the province of BC. I think it's most acute in Vancouver, and I think um, you know our city does the heavy lifting of that. Um, and I think it's really important to point out that um, there are the downstream costs of not providing people with enough to at least secure their basic means and have enough of a of a social cushion or support that they can be in a space where they can try to better their situation are so significant to society, and we see it in terms of homelessness. We have, you know, an ongoing sort of static number of about 2,000 homeless every year. It's not going down. Um, we see growing mental health um, issues. It's That's not decreasing either. Increasing addictions. Um, and it's all related to poverty when people find themselves in these dire situations. So I don't think that this is the only step. I think this is a significant and an important one. 
Um, but I think we also need to go beyond it and deal with the other um, issues about getting much more pervasive and readily available mental health services and addiction treatment services. Uh, do you think there's more the city can do on the civic level in that we talk about health care, we talk about uh, the, the social assistance and, and things that are under the jurisdiction of the province, but is there something the city could be doing more on its own? I think that the city has really stepped up on this. Um, we put unprecedented levels of investment for municipal government into housing, um, as well into a number of social service support programs in the downtown east side. And what we're seeing clearly right now is that it's not getting better. Um, and the old adage of if you keep doing what you've always done, um, it's not going to change, really applies here. Um, and so I think that Vancouver has been triaging and this clear, unequivocal, unanimous call from city council says, help, uh, we're at crisis mode here and we're at our wit's end of what we can do as a civic government and we need the province to step up and help. And how have you seen things change during the pandemic? It exacerbates it during the pandemic. Things like uh, shelter spaces, you know, if somebody has, is at risk of vulnerable losing housing because their income is, is so low. Um, we see the increasing cost and the affordability here. So um, but for those folks that are homeless, we see it exacerbated even more because there's a reduction in shelter spaces because of capacity and distancing requirements. So it certainly impacted people significantly there. Uh, things like food costs, you know, I see food costs that are rising and that can be really um, critical for somebody when they're shopping and they have limited dollars that they, they can't get sort of nutritional food or sufficient food for a week. And do you think there's a bigger role as well as far as the city? And we've talked many times about Strathcona Park, the encampment that's in the park as one example of something that's not working. Uh, people have raised the, the question that council did come up with $30 million some time ago to deal with that. It doesn't seem like anything really happens quickly, though. Um, it, it doesn't. And again, this is you know where we need, I think, the strong showing and signaling support is really important. On Strathcona Park, that wasn't a united signal from council. Um, Mayor Stewart, for example, voted against decampment, um, as did, um, I think it was Councillor uh, Swanson or Councillor Boyle. Um, and so that sends mixed signals to the province. And that's really difficult when you're trying to put, you know, sort of full effort behind moving forward to a solution. Um, and I think that that's been one of the challenges with Strathcona is they didn't get a clear signal from City Council of what we supported, but here we are sending one. And I know the letter has just been written and published. Have you had any feedback or any response at this point? Yeah, we've had very positive feedback um, of seeing Council come together on an issue. Um, That's that's one of the comments I'm hearing a lot. And the other one is um, not having endless motions at Council um, and taking the step of just speaking publicly and doing it through an op-ed as opposed to having it come forward through a member motion, um, which can take additional time and it can also get politicized very quickly. And also, I I mean, again, I think most people, if not everybody, would agree with this, that it seems like a good idea. We've heard from from people who got the supplement saying it might not seem like a lot of money, but that $300, that benefit, made a huge difference. So I I think it would be easy to have people come on board and say, yes, this is a great idea. But it's also the province's decision. It doesn't appear the province is changing its mind when it comes to this benefit. Uh, so, So I guess in that sense, yes, it's a good thing that council didn't put a whole bunch of time into doing this. Uh, but does that does that also point that maybe other things could be streamlined and council could be more productive, perhaps? I absolutely think that council could be more productive. I think that we did see a signal from Premier Horgan in one of the, the question uh, periods that he might be open um, and when he started to see pushback on this $300 being taken away. Um, so I'm hopeful that council adding its voice to this um, will help nudge that conversation. Um, and yeah, I absolutely think we can do things more efficiently at council. We should bring forward motions that are actually 
within our jurisdiction and focus on that, on things where we can make a difference. Um, and oftentimes we, we get a lot of motions that are more along the lines of advocacy, but really don't fall, fall within the city's authority. Uh, indeed, uh, that is true. Uh, Councillor, just before I let you go, uh, throw, I'm throwing this at you only because I know it's something we've talked about before, so hopefully it doesn't come right out of the blue. But uh, last week we were talking a bit about uh, the Trump Tower and the fact that the Trump name is still on the building. Uh, got a ton of feedback uh, to the interview our, our contributor John Jang uh, did uh, with the former planner. Uh, does Council have the power to take that sign down or to, to remove it in any way in that the Trump Tower itself, the hotel, has closed? So, you know, I'm happy for you to throw questions at me anytime. Um, and let me be clear, I would like to see that sign come down. The answer is that no, my understanding is Council does not have the ability to ask to have that come down because it um, meets the criteria under commercial signage guidelines and the bylaw. Um, the intent with, and there is a, an agreement between the current um, ownership of that site and the third party um agreement that they have to use the rights on that, but um, the Trump Hotel will be going away, so I expect that the signage will be going as that hotel is rebranded in the coming months. Um, I don't think that we're too far away from that, so I think it'll get resolved that way because the hotel is slated to be rebranded, and I think that that's actually the the best path forward because I don't think Council has the ability, although it might be, and it, it is really upsetting to a lot of people for it to be there. Legally, we don't have the right to take it down. So it's different than, say, when the the J.K. Rowling billboard was put up, and I know you were vocal in wanting that taken down as well, but that would be a different scenario than when we have an agreement and a sign on a building? Yeah, well, this this meets a a current city bylaw, and I think the J.K. Rowling uh, situation specifically was a clear um, intent to incite hate speech. Um, from a known campaign that had been waged um, in many jurisdictions and cities. Um, And so I think there was a lot of clarity um, on that one and pushback. And again, that fell under Patterson Outdoor, um, not the city of Vancouver. So I was very vocal on it with Patterson's decision to take it down, and I commend them for that. Um, But they also have policies as it relates to hate speech. So there there is a a sort of a qualitative difference between these two situations. We were just talking with Isabel McKenzie, the seniors advocate in BC, uh, talking about the number of people who are essential and social visitors and getting family members more access to their loved ones in long-term care. Let's check in with Dan Levitt, who is the CEO at Tabor Village. Dan, thanks so much for coming back on the program. Pleasure to be here, Jill. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the numbers seem to be off, first of, all, uh, first of all, with BC's, with the government's numbers of how many people are registered? Uh, Isabel McKenzie saying that she thinks the actual number is quite, is a lot lower than that. What are your thoughts on how many people uh, there are that are actually getting access as either essential or social visitors? Well, I think it would be dependent on the actual site um, where, uh, where their loved one lives. Um, there could be a number of different circumstances. Um, at Tabor Village, uh, we have two sites that have complex care, and one of our buildings has uh, 43% um, of the seniors have an essential visitor. Another building has 72%, so it's combined numbers of 50%. So half of the seniors living at Tabor Village in complex care have an essential visitor, which I think is um, a good number. I'd love to see that number um, being as close to 100% as possible. And as far as you know, looking at uh, the the homes that you are in charge of, uh, as well as long-term care in general, is it a bit of a patchwork in that uh, different facilities interpret the rules differently? Um, It may be that, and it may also be the circumstances. I think our challenge right now is that um, from a public health point of view, um, our job is to ensure the health and safety of the people who work here, the people who live here, 
And uh, that's a balance. So we're always looking at what's in the best interest of the well-being of the seniors. Um, how can we make sure that they're having contact with their family members? Because we know how important that is to their health. And at the same time, we're trying to balance that with um, with the staff members, making sure um, that they're able to get their work done. So we're always looking at that, that balance. So that may, that may be part of uh, the reason why we don't have the kinds of numbers that we'd love to see. Uh, as we went to air, we got another email uh, release from Fraser Health uh, that Eagle Ridge Manor, which is owned and operated by Fraser Health, uh, but it seems to be the latest facility. It now uh, has an outbreak with one resident and one staff member testing positive for COVID-19. Um, and I think that's what's really putting people on edge is that we are still having these outbreaks. How are things going at Tabor Village? Well, I'm really proud to say that um, um, when our outbreak was declared over, a week or so ago, um, the, the vaccinations had already started, and we're seeing um, great uptake with our vaccinations, um, in particular with the older persons who live here, and as well as, as staff members. And those numbers will continue to go up, and also grateful um, to share that the number of essential visitors that have had um, a vaccination have also um, been, been fantastic. So we're seeing that piece happen, and with the vaccinations, the priority being on older persons, I'm confident that we'll see um, less outbreaks like we saw at Tabor and other sites. The, that widespread outbreak um, hopefully won't happen when we have the, the high number of vaccinations amongst healthcare workers and essential visitors and um, older persons living in care. Uh, how is the, the vaccination rollout going then as far as residents, healthcare workers and the essential visitors getting the shots? Well, we've been very encouraged um, to, to see the vast majority. Um, I think we're at 80%, 90% in, of uh, residents and even higher. And uh, those people who have said no initially, um, their family members, if they're making decisions for them later on, they'll, they'll change their mind. We're seeing the same thing with um, healthcare workers initially, about 50%. And then we're seeing that, that um, steadily um, go up. And same thing with essential visitors. And um, we're quite excited this week that we're now getting the phone calls for our second dose of the vaccine. So it's all very positive. And sir, when you say 50% for healthcare workers, is that 50% of people who want the shot have, have got the shot or only 50% have consented to getting the shot? Yeah, only 50% have consented, which um, you could be discouraged about depending on how you look at the glass. I always think of the glass being half full versus half, half empty. And I'm confident that as time goes on, um, just like the general population, um, I understand from a, a recent Angus Reid poll that um, the general population in BC, 61% are ready to be vaccinated. So that kind of reflects the healthcare workers um, in long-term care. Uh, we're seeing that similarly, those similar numbers in Tabor. And I'm confident that as time goes on, the numbers will will improve. Do you have to change protocol then or do anything different if we are in a scenario where 90% of the residents are vaccinated, as are the essential visitors? If only 50% of the healthcare workers, the staff are, uh, do they uh, do they have to wear masks or do you have to do something different then if you're dealing with staff members that aren't vaccinated? It's a good question and we're still sorting uh, that out. Um, the guidelines haven't been, been developed specifically around that. Um, we still are um, following all the protocols that are in place um, across the healthcare system. So um, PPE is worn, um, gloves, goggles and masks. Um, when we have drops of precautions at, at, when we're suspicious of somebody having COVID or if we're on an outbreak, we're wearing gowns. Um, we're still doing the six feet uh, social distancing. We're doing all those, um, the hand washing, we're doing all those things that you still have to do even with the vaccination. And my, my assumption, my prediction is that 
Um, as time goes on, probably after uh, Easter, we'll see some reductions in, uh, in the safety measures in terms of the orders, provincial orders, and uh, hopefully the, the 400,000 people that should be vaccinated in that first initial wave, they've been vaccinated. We see the counts go down in the population, and hopefully by then we'll see some reduction in the kind of restrictions we have. But um, the healthcare workers who are vaccinated or not vaccinated, they don't at this point have any different privileges than anybody else. All right. And do you anticipate any slowdown with the, the Pfizer or, or I'm guessing it would be the Moderna vaccine that has been used is in long term care. Is there any disruption that you're anticipating? Not at all. Um, we, we've been um, quite happy with the way that the vaccinations have been rolled out. Um, and uh, I was very pleased personally, um, from my perspective, um, seeing uh, long term care be a priority in assisted living. So we're grateful um, of that approach, and we're anticipating um, that in a few months from now, when everyone's been vaccinated, who, co- who comes into long-term care or sooner, that things um, resemble a little bit of what it was like before COVID-19. All right, Dan, we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Always good to have you on the show. Anytime. Well, Nova Scotia's new Human Organ and Tissue Donation Act is officially in effect. The goal, allowing more residents to donate organs at their time of death through presumed or deemed consent. And this new model means that Nova Scotia is the first jurisdiction in North America to operate under this type of legislation. So joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Dr. Stephen Bede, the medical director of the Nova Scotia Organ and Tissue Donation Program. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for the invitation. Uh, the first uh, jurisdiction in North America, I know it's taken some time to get to this point. How important is it, do you think, to have this legislation of deemed consent? Well, I think it's crucially important that we change the system in the way we did to support the new legislation. And by that, I mean that we've essentially rebooted the way our program is set up and structured And that's been hugely important, and it's been done so that we could support a new law that comes into effect today. Was there pushback from people who didn't like this idea or didn't like this this particular legislation? Remarkably little. Of course, there, there have been some people that have brought up concerns. It's impossible to transform a system and have universal... Uh, agreement, but the uh, but the voices against this have been remarkably muted, and and I think that's because the concerns raised by those who oppose this, for example, we're not respecting patient autonomy. Well, we've we built in uh, an opt-out registry that enables people with that perspective to to express their opinion. We'll respect it. Uh, the issues around education, well, we can always do more, but we're we're trying to educate our healthcare community and the public. The concerns around uh, marginalized groups not being uh, addressed, well, we've, we've also tried to specifically reach out to historically marginalized groups, and there's also some exclusions. So things that people could credibly, credibly argue against are things we've tried to respect and build into our strategy to bring this on board. So how does it work now in Nova Scotia if somebody is in an accident or, or, or when they die, if they are a viable organ donor, then will the, it'll be automatic then unless the person has opted out? Essentially, yes, although determining what the, what the patient's wishes would be 
is based on consultation with our opt-out registry to see if they have, in fact, registered an intent to opt-out. But we do discuss the situation with the family. But the question we're posing to their loved ones is, what was the last known wish of their loved one? Which is different from, do you provide consent for your loved one to be a donor? There's a subtle but very important distinction in the question that's being asked. And so if somebody can tell us that their dad did not register an intent to opt out, but he really didn't want that to happen, of course we respect that. It is the last known wish of the patient. And I think that goes to to another issue as well about having these conversations. And I think we can all agree they're not happy or fun conversations, but they are important for if somebody is is finding themselves in that situation and having that conversation with a doctor. It's hugely important. These are the most tragic things that anyone can imagine. Uh, you know, the death of a loved one in a typically a sudden catastrophic situation. It's very difficult. But as, as some colleagues have pointed out who were actually donor moms, the idea that we could ask a question, would, would your loved one want to help somebody through donation, is the only question that we may ask them that has any chance of healing. And so it's a difficult conversation and it's a difficult question, but it is one that can provide some comfort to a family in the midst of what's nothing but tragedy. How do you see this changing as far as numbers? And we often, well, not often, but we do talk about wait lists and how long people can be on a list, uh, say, in need of a kidney or in need of an organ transplant. How do, do we have an idea on the numbers on how this could change the number of donations and how much that will that will go up by? Well, it's interesting, and it's a universal question. If you look around the world at countries that have brought this on board, it's not universal, but in general, a 20 to 30 percent bump in donation rate has been seen. Now, what we've seen in Nova Scotia, which is, I think, remarkable, is in the last year, bearing in mind that it's a COVID year, where virtually all of the world has had a decrease in donation, we have been rebooting our program in anticipation of this new law and our donation rates have, have skyrocketed. We have gone from about 20 donors per year to 34 donors last year, which is remarkable. We will have a donor per million rate, which is the highest, to my knowledge, the highest that has ever been recorded in Canada and is, uh, is remarkable. And so, we have seen an increase in donation that will translate into more organs available for people on the wait list. I certainly hope we can sustain this level of performance, but so far we've been very pleased with how successful our messaging has been. Does it seem strange that it's, when you talk about organ donation, I think we tend to have agreement. People think it's very important to people understand that it does save lives, but we don't see those numbers reflected under the system, uh, what would be now the old system in Nova Scotia, of people taking that time to actually sign up and be an organ donor. That's true. Uh, Nova Scotia had an opt-in registry, and we had 54% of our population indicate they wanted to be officially registered as an organ donor, and that was the highest number in the country by far. 
but it's still way below the 90-something percent that say they want to be a donor. So that's a big, important gap. And I think part of it is because the truth is that nobody really likes to think about their own death and the decisions that are made around then. And in the midst of the crisis that is the death of a loved one, people are exhausted, they're scared, they're stressed. They're often not thinking as clearly as they might on a regular day. And these issues, if not brought up by the healthcare team, certainly may be missed by the families. And, uh, and so it's a, it's a complex environment, and we need to put in place a system that enables us to maximize our opportunity to help these families make, as a colleague called it, their best decision on their worst day. Uh, have you had any feedback from other provinces, or do you think that others will, will f- see what's happening in Nova Scotia and bring in similar legislation? Well, we've been studying our system in great detail with the support of a Health Canada grant and a Nova Scotia Health Authority grant to identify all the moving pieces in our program historically, what's happening now and what's happening as this comes on board with the intention of learning some lessons that I know our provincial colleagues will be looking to. We've had lots of interest from other provinces around this. And so when we have more information based on all of our studies, I have no doubt that our provincial colleagues will be very interested in what we have to learn. And there's been some interest in this discussion with other countries as well. So bringing on deemed consent has been a Nova Scotia first, but maybe it's things, it's something the rest of the country will be thinking about. Well, we will uh, certainly be watching and uh, seeing what happens next. Dr. Bede, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Well, coming up this half hour, we're going to talk a little bit more about the legal arguments being considered now in Alberta if the Keystone XL expansion pipeline is scrapped, which it is looking like that is going to happen. First, though, BC Emergency Health Services has once again sent out a rapid response team to a more rural part of the province. This, as Williams Lake deals with an increasing number of COVID-19 cases, And joining me to talk more about this is Walt Cobb, who is the mayor of Williams Lake. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, How are things going as far as COVID-19 and what's happening in that part of the province? Well, we've had a bit of a a bit of a scare, a bit of an outbreak, I guess. Uh, But we have uh, we are now our biggest issue was we weren't getting the information we felt we needed to be able to make sure that our emergency operations centers and whatnot had the information so that if it got uh, worse than what it is right now, we didn't have the the numbers and, and the ability to to do what we thought we needed to do to be prepared. But we have now arranged meetings, daily meetings, and, and we go in 11.30 to 12.30 every day now with to get our updates on where it is happening, not only right in Williams Lake, but uh, in our surrounding area. The uh, <clears throat> We are the central hospital for the, for the region, which goes all the way out to Anaheim Lake and Horsefly Lake, the area as well. So it's, it's a big area that our hospital serves. And uh, so they're in the process now of arranging for possible accommodations if, in fact, somebody has to be are in at a state where they should probably not go home, stay closer to the hospital. And uh, 
so we're we're in the process of or they are in the process anyway of trying to arrange some kind of accommodation where they can self-isolate so that they don't have to go back home and but be closer to the hospital if need be right do you know the number of cases then or how many covid cases there are in that area uh, not exactly. Um, we figure there is about 117, but what we haven't been able to identify were if those were right in Williams Lake, because uh, one of the First Nations community just within 10 miles of us has 28. Uh, there's 14 or 17 in another community that's about... Oh, about 45 minutes away that uses our, us, us as a center. So we don't know if those numbers are all inclusive or whether there's 117 plus those ones. So uh, I think it's 117 approximately altogether, which if you subtract what other numbers we have from around the area would leave us with about 77 within our community. Now, this was as of last week. That's the other issue that must, some of this information is a week old. Right. We, we, the, the, the way it has to be addressed and because of privacy issues and all that and reported into Interior Health, it's, it, take, it could take up to a week to get some of the information in, which to me is, is not, not adequate, let's put it that way. And I, I understand our frontline workers that are – there's many of them are having to do this off of the side of their desk. And I think Interior Health or the provincial government have to get on the ball and get some dedicated people to deal directly with it, or we're going to continue to get these outbreaks and and nobody's going to know where they are. I do believe that because we haven't had good information, our community has been a little bit lax on, on following the protocols because we've had no indication that there was anything in town. Right. So everybody was kind of, oh, well, you know, we don't really have any here, uh, maybe one in the hospital, this kind of stuff. So they were a little bit lackadaisy on it. And I think by us being able to get the information and knowing exactly how many are here, uh, we'll, we'll maybe make people a little bit more aware and not so scared. I mean, there, we have some of our seniors that are pretty scared. They don't know where to go. they got to go shopping. They've got, I mean, they're still living at home, uh, but they're afraid to go out. Because we don't know what it, what the actual numbers are and where they might be, so uh, we're working on it, and uh, we're starting to get the numbers now. It has improved a lot in the last few days because we got our MLA involved, and and uh, we we were pretty adamant that you know this was not good enough, and there they were sending in this new the new unit with the. Uh, the air ambulance and whatnot, a four four man unit to assist in in transporting. So that scares people when they announce that this is going to happen. But well, why are you doing all this if there's nothing wrong? And uh, so anyway, that that's now happening, and and we'll have them here for I don't know how long they'll stay. I guess depending on how this outbreak happens. And that's you're talking about the major incident, the rapid response team that the yes, province yes. has sent in. Yes, yes. Where do you think the breakdown was, or, or why was there such a, a lapse in getting that information and getting information to you and to the community that was up to date? Well, it's coming from not from within our community. It's coming from the higher-ups, whether it's coming from the, the provincial ministry or whether it's coming in 
from Interior Health themselves, but there's a lot of privacy issues they're concerned about and whatnot. And what I've been saying to them, look, at, I don't need the names. I just need to know where they are. I mean, is it in the school? Is it in our senior centre? Is it just in the hospital where people are showing up? Uh, we need to know, uh, and, it, and particularly also we need to know if they're going to bring these people in from other areas that have COVID and have to be isolated for our operation, emergency operations centre to be aware of where they are so that if there's any other kind of an incident, like, say, a fire, um, our firemen know that, okay, there's, there's COVID-related people in that, in that facility and, and they have to take those precautions. So there's a lot of other things that you have to kind of plan for that you can't, you can't fly by the seat of your pants on, on, with some of these issues. No, and uh, I understand as well that vaccinations are going to start up if they haven't started already, uh, especially for healthcare workers. Yes, well, we've already had, they've had, I think, about 300 vaccinations, people vaccinated in the region. Now, that's not just within the city. And apparently there's 125 doses being distributed to ICU and the COVID physicians and the frontline staff as of today. Uh, so uh, that that's the good news. But I said to them yesterday when we were on this conference call, this is this is so ridiculous. It to me, our doctors, our nurses, our home care workers, and our frontline workers, our ambulance drivers, should have been the first. If this vaccination is the be all and end all, and supposedly stop people from getting it. Those people are the ones that should have got it first because they're having to deal with it. And as I said yesterday, look, at we've got other things happening besides COVID. So our hospital goes down. I mean, we had, what, 12, in, 12 nurses and doctors um, that were affected and had to isolate. Well, we don't have that many staff. And, and we double that, and, and we could end up having to shut down our emergency board. Well, what about if we have a car accident? What about if somebody has a heart attack? There's other things happening in the world besides COVID. And that's why our doctors and nurses need to be on the front line and get the vaccination and protect them so that they, they're able to look after any other incident that may happen. Uh, well, uh, Mayor Cobb, we'll have to leave it there for today, but it sounds uh, like uh, you're getting a handle on things or at least getting the information that's needed and getting it to, to the residents. Uh, would you say, are, are you optimistic that, that uh, a corner has been turned? Yes, we're on our way to, to better communication for sure.